You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Movie Graveyard. We are very excited to be rolling in here tonight with another... Actually, we're going with a 90s classic. This is our second 90s movie. And uh, I have a huge roster of uh, people to cover this with me. Um, You've actually heard every single person who's going to be on here tonight on a show before. But you haven't heard them all together. So let's get right down to it. I am the... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am the originator of this circus. Everybody, you know me. This is the goat. But I want to introduce my friends here. Uh, sitting right directly in front of me, I have a guy you'll know very well. I think he actually maybe has the record of having the second most appearances on the show after me. We got the one, the only, the part-time, gone full-time. He's always around doing something. Grave digger here. Welcome, Trev3K, to the show. Trev, how you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, and we got an all-star roster for an all-star movie. It's exciting. Absolutely. This was your idea, not only to cover this movie, but to get the whole gang together. So I appreciate Well, you know, as they say, like, it's exciting when you, you know, you usually figure out who your friends are by their interests, and it's just exciting to know that I have three friends who love this movie as much as I do. Exactly. Over to my left, I have a man who's made a few appearances on this show. Um, I think one of the last times we saw him, he was hanging out at the chopping mall, but he's come back. I want to welcome a man who is very well-versed in the giant monster phenomenon. I'm talking about Bird. Bird, what's going on? Uh, Not much. It's good to be here. Uh, And I'm surprised that I know three other people who have seen this movie. Absolutely. (laughs) And last but not least, over to my right, I have a friend here who, he's popped in on the graveyard before, even though it wasn't technically the graveyard when we were recording it, but then it became the graveyard. Uh, this this guy I've known for years, obviously done many podcasts together with, but um, I, I, I had to, you know, in order to get him to come on here, I had to agree to two things. Number one, I couldn't talk about any of this year's Oscar nominees. And uh, <laughs> number two, I we I could not bring up Star Wars, and I said, okay, that's going to be very hard. I'll bite my tongue just to get you on the show. But uh, you know, everybody, the one, the only, the Jelly is here. Jelly, what's going on? I'm glad to be here, and and yeah, this is one of those movies that God, I think the reason we found out about all of us liking it is because I said, hey, I watched this really kind of weird movie and you guys were like you've seen that movie <laughs> so it really is one of those ones that like when you when you make new friends you're like oh have you ever seen this and no one has and you're always no. kind of bummed you know <laughs> it's, it's interesting here that you know you know like goat said this is the first time all four of us are appearing on the graveyard we've all four done so many other podcasts <laughs> together true. yes yeah. We also should mention that, uh, get ready to feel old, uh, this year is this movie's 20th anniversary. So Right. And oh. I, Yeah, I just realized that the other day, and I was like, wow, it's actually good timing to do this. So before we get rolling here with the main feature, let's do one last check, because i got to check to see if our DVD players or Blu-ray players are awake. Everybody check oh, this one last good. time. Mine's- okay, I think we're ready to go here. Uh, again... Uh, I, I guess we should say we are watching the big hit if you have, <laughs> but obviously you know this if you download this. Um, uh, I am going to say oh, one, I gotta two, go th- change my Blu-ray. Oh, <laughs> 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 what were you watching? The big shit. 
<laughs> but um yeah so i'm gonna say one two three go and we all have this pause at the literally the one second mark of the dvd or blu-ray which is just a black screen it's going to come up on the uh either columbia or tristar logo i can't remember which one but uh, i'm gonna say one two three go when you hear me say go hit play on your remotes here everybody remote in hand all right one two three go all right a logo we don't see in front of movies anymore. Exactly. Oh, we do every night. No- there was something I just watched that did have it. Yeah, what like, was it? like they retired. It's, quite- it's so confusing. Sony bought, we're talking about TriStar Pictures. They retired TriStar for a while, but then they brought it back. So I don't know if TriStar is dead or not right now, to be completely honest. I swear. For something- a comeback. Are you guys noticing that like Orion is back and it's yes. like really exciting to see that logo again? It is. Something I just watched had the TriStar logo and it was uh, it was something like from the last year or two. Hold on. I'll figure. Oh, Baby Driver. Baby Driver. Baby okay. Driver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe TriStar has been. Yeah. Because Sony. Well, technically, Sony was never really studio. Sony, the company, bought Columbia Pictures at one point in time. And then somehow Columbia and TriStar were hooked up. So they kind of like. But there was, you know, for a while, there was movies coming out both on Columbia and TriStar. But this had the up, like the. This had like the 90s TriStar. Because it didn't have like the actual video of the horse running towards the camera, which was always the best TriStar logo. You know, this movie's irreverent because it doesn't capitalize anything in the credits. No. I was going to say, like, the credits are very much, like, in almost, like, vignette style. Like, the, the main chunk of the movie is very kind of sequential in the near. But when you watch the credits, like, it starts out, like, there's, you know, in, like, during the opening montage, like, there's really, uh, like, a lot of, like, li- just little things that are kind of thrown at you right away. If you're not paying attention, like, you might miss kind of some of what they're setting up here. So uh, I saw this in the theaters on opening day. Wow. I was 13, and I think this was the second R-rated movie I'd seen in theaters. I I saw Go, I think, a couple weeks before this. Wow. And my mom mom took me and my friend to see both of them. I can't imagine... I, mean, I can't imagine what she thought of this. This is a pretty weak R, though, really, you know, yeah. in terms of that. I mean, there's definitely some, like, blood and everything, but and some swearing, but nothing that a mom, I think, would feel too bad about taking her kids to see. I, I, go, on the other hand, I think. Yeah, goes very R. A little more strange. I think with this one, at the time, like, the reason this is probably mostly R um, is... Uh, and I think the lack of gore is probably more to budget than even, like, intentional. But I think at this time, if you remember, like, now PG-13 movies, especially because they make a lot of PG-13 horror, PG-13 movies are very gruesome now. And this movie was, like, black humor. But it did. It was very gruesome, like, this opening part where Mark Wahlberg is, like, throwing arms and legs out of, like, garbage bags. You didn't see that kind of stuff. Like, now you, you kind of do in PG-13 movies. But back then, PG-13 movies were very... Uh, you know, not as dark and gruesome as they are now. I thought you were going to say it was R because no little kids should have to see Elliot Gould drunk. <laughs> well, that too, but <laughs> let's be honest. <clears throat> should we just briefly say what this movie is about, just in case, you know, because this isn't a super popular film. Yeah, so I, we just I, gave I, a yeah. little plot description. Well, you guys also have a lot of people that just l- like to listen, right? Yeah, we do. Yeah. 
It's really only so the big hits a a 1998 uh, action comedy starring Mark Wahlberg as a kind of like uh, mild mannered, meek, uh, nervous uh, hitman who is part of a team of uh, assassins. And they're kind of unhappy with how much they're paid by their employer, and so they decide to go and do their own job, uh, kidnapping the daughter of a who they believe is like a rich uh, businessman. And then it turns out that she's actually the goddaughter of their typical employer, and Mark Wahlberg has to kind of like hide her in his house until they can figure out what to, what's going on, and then things just escalate from there. And I'm sure we'll talk about the rest of the story as we go along, but that's just a basic breakdown of this. But well, I guess it's most noticeable for, and what we'll talk about quite a bit on here, I'm sure, that is it's <laughs> Mark Wahlberg's <laughs> excellent physique. Um, well, I saw the John Woo uh, credit. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it's it's definitely um, indicative of a time in American action cinema when they were really heavily bringing over the Asian influence. This was kind of all the rage around this time, and that's what Big Hit is really well, well, um, um, remembered for. Well, this movie came at a time, like I said, I was 13 and I was just kind of discovering, you know, Tarantino and Rodriguez and, and stuff like that. And it was and I was kind of going through a John Woo phase and his name is actually what got me um, interested in this. Well, Hollywood is going through a John Woo phase. At this yeah. Point. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is also when he was kind of blowing up doing stuff like Mission Impossible <clears throat> 2 and Face Off and uh and stuff like that. We're, we just got, I mean, it's it's a little over now, but we just got basically the defining characteristic of uh, Bakeem Woodbine's character in this movie. Right. Uh, he has never jerked off in his life until last week. And, 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 and now it's completely now changed his life. the rest of this life. movie, he's like, he like can't wait to get home so that he can go jerk <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, because they even... By the way, that, even just, that just felt so like old-fashioned right just watching like all of your main male leads just showing their asses in like a locker room right scene. yeah you don't get that now like like yeah i, I want to say that um basically around this time period the mid to late 90s like a lot of the action stars had fizzled out like stallone's career was very yeah. hit or miss same with like, Schwarzenegger. I, 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 arnold was at like the end of days level where no one really cared. Yeah, Goat, I particularly want to talk to you about this because you and I are roughly the same age and we certainly remember this a lot when like, you know, the you know, eight, the eighties was a great time for American action films, but the late eighties and early nineties it really started to kind of peter out. You're right. And the answer is definitely at that point, if you were an action junkie, you were probably getting like you were watching like bootlegs of like the Hong Kong stuff because they were coming to be known as that's where all the crazy action was. And Hollywood finally started to catch on to that. And I think, like, this is definitely a follow-up of, you know, like, Rumble in the Bronx came out here in, what, 94, 95? Right. And uh, and actually hit pretty big, and suddenly you had them doing, they brought over, like, Super Cop and stuff, too. And then they brought John Woo back after an initial attempt with Hard Target, which kind of failed. But Hollywood came back to him and gave him Broken Arrow and Mission Impossible 2, as Bird was saying. And then... Then it was just like open season where they tried to bring over all these guys. And I always wonder like, with Big Hit if uh, <laughs> I think they maybe thought Kirk Wong was like a, a huge, like one of those big action directors. So I think he was actually known more for dramatic kind of crime drama. Yeah, over he there. was. He was. And it's kind of funny, too, because like I want to say what it seemed like was going on. The reason Hollywood was like giving the Hong Kong people such a chance was like the big name stars, like we said, had fizzled out. 
And, like, whereas now I feel like Hollywood, if something isn't making money, they just drop the genre completely. I think they were really, like, looking for the Hong Kong directors and even some of the stars to come over to kind of reinvigorate. Because these were such easy bets. Like, a lot of these films were made for, you know, I mean, this this particular movie is, like, a really low-budget movie. But, but you know, like, they, action movies were just always such a great return on investments. A lot of them, they spend $20 million on them or less, and they would always gross two, three times the budget. So Hollywood, like, whereas now they just run to where the money is. Like, back then, I felt like they were trying to, like, kind of give the action genre a shot in the arm with all this overseas talent coming in. Yeah. Yeah, the only other movie I've seen from this director is uh, Crime Story, starring Jackie Chan, which is actually not so much a martial arts kind of movie. It's much more of a dramatic movie. I remember that's the first Jackie Chan movie I watched and thought, like, oh, wow, he can actually act. Yeah, that's a great movie. So let's talk a little... I've never seen any of his other work. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk a little more about what's actually going on here is the team of guys who, if we didn't run it down before, it's Lou Diamond Phillips, Atenu Sambato Jr., Boking Woodbine, and a very young Mark Wahlberg. They're basically posing as, I guess, some type of construction workers, and they're infiltrating this kind of old-timey hotel to take out a very, like, stereotypical mob boss. And here you have, like, a very, like, they cut the power. And you and by the way, Boking cut the power. Even though he could have just flipped the switches off, he had, like, um... Like a pair of bolt cutters. Bolt cutters. And if you notice the bolt cutters, like the blades, like they were nowhere near as big enough as those big metal coils he was trying yeah, to cut. Yeah, they couldn't even get around them. Yeah. Like they didn't even get a shot of him ready to cut them. He was just kind of. This is also when every action movie, someone gets shot by with a pistol and like fly through a wall. Right. Well, <laughs> so that's that's the Hong Kong thing, right? So we yeah. talk about what was the Hong Kong influence that came over. It was like this hyper stylization. Oh, look how 90s this is. Yeah. Oh, with the like blur lines. Yeah. <laughs> in, his, in a moment, he's gonna like start like br- yeah, right here, like doing just nonsensical flips in the air and break dancing. And- <laughs> he's break dance shooting. He's literally yeah, he's literally break dancing. But but this is the Hong Kong style. I mean, th- there are some Hong Kong um, action films that are very serious and grim and kind of more realistically violent. But it. it I you know John Woo kind of got the uh, the thing of like his movies were like a ballet and, and some of the other mm-hmm. Hong Kong movies were and weren't but like there definitely was a more um, physicality to it with more like kind of grace and like so like even though like it looks ridiculous to us that Mark Wahlberg is basically breakdance shooting like it, like I'm sure like nobody in Hong Kong like would have watched that and thought it was you know strange well, that's, or otherwise. that's what even what they they called John Woo's style back then was bullet ballet I exactly. remember and uh, and you know it's 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 almost hard to think of a time when this was like novel in Hollywood because really this hasn't ever gone away. I mean, you look at something like John Wick and that's still kind of the prevalent, you know, this like overly choreographed action scenes. That's still what we like, but it really came in in like the mid nineties here. Right. I remember that non dairy creamer line was in all the uh, commercials. Yeah. 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 Cause basically the, the gig here is that the other guys are lazy and they always hang back, you know, Either lazy or scared. I mean, it's hard to say which. And they they always, they always let. Uh, and we'll get into a little more. Uh, Mark Wahlberg plays Melvin Spot, Smiley, and uh, he kind of lets everybody walk all over himself. So he always, but he's he's kind of like a savant when it comes to killing, though. Like he's a badass action killer, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's like Trev said, he's very mild mannered. He's uh, he lets everyone walk all over him. He lets, you know, his. his his girlfriend and her parents walk all over him. He lets his, his side girl walk all over him. He gets really bad anxiety and, uh, there's a, there'll be 
plenty of shots of him drinking like Maylox or whatever. Yeah, because like, he's got an ulcer. Yeah, um, but yeah, he is just the best, the best killer. I mean, he just killed what like thirty guys by himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's just good at it. <laughs> and I thought now, Antonio this... Sabato Jr. is kind of the typical cipher. I feel like he always is in this film, but. I definitely want to consistently this when we talk about how awesome Lou Diamond Phillips is in this. <laughs> well, and Antonio Sato Jr. for all of you know his prominence on the posters and in the advertisements, he's really not in this movie yeah, after no. this. But no, Lou Diamond Phillips is is just wonderful in this, and uh, I. I mean, he this is this was a big role for him at this point. I think because he was. Kind of not doing much around the time this movie yeah, came out. Yeah, he's a lot of DTV. Bat. And then yeah. and then there was a couple. Uh, oh, Bats, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I just, <laughs> well, this and Bats was kind of him knocking back on the Hollywood door. And we should say this was at a time when, when low-budget pictures still could get a wide release. There, you know, Like, this was from a major studio, but there was a few. There was, like, Destination Films and a few others that were putting these mid-budget movies, like, into theaters back then. But uh, when I saw this movie, I thought for sure this was going to be a big Lou Diamond uh, comeback, and uh, it never kind of really materialized. Um, yeah, I, 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 I remember when movies like this came out, like, geez, seemed like every week. These kinds of action movies don't really happen anymore. I feel like it's always just kind of the you know, you killed my family, revenge, like the Liam Neeson movies. That's all. Re- well, all I, think like, I, I, think if I think the like modern equivalent of this is like the Luke Besson kind of factory, which is like, yeah. there's just kind of smaller budgeted action films, but yeah, they're not maybe as irreverent as this one is. No, yeah, this one. And we, we should talk a little bit about this. There's a little bit more action, but I want to get a little more, even even deeper than we've already talked about, about kind of the behind the scenes people behind this. Cause, cause this is like, and we'll get into it in a second, but this is like the ultimate Hollywood diversity in terms of behind the camera, behind the scenes. But uh, yeah, here, we, what do you guys think about Mark Wahlberg when he actually like offs the mafia guy? We finally get like a like a little moment of him being like a cold killer. Like, what do you think about Mark Wahlberg's character in general? I mean, we'll, we'll kind of when, when he interacts with the women later, we'll get into it more. But what do you think? All of I can his, really like, think about is those are those Kevin Smith jorts he's wearing. Yeah. <laughs> I I think he's kind of a typical good guy in the wrong place kind of character, even though, you know, he kills, he cheats on his girlfriend and all that. But he's. Yeah, he doesn't strike me as a cold. I mean, at the time, you know, obviously I was much younger when I watched this movie originally and became a fan of this movie. But at the time, I really didn't think much about just, oh, he's a cool action guy. But. If you were to analyze it by movie standards now, he's definitely, like, no if ands, or buts. He's definitely a sociopath. <laughs> Look at this guy. <laughs> yeah. I actually think this is some very good... I don't know That's if you know... Cool. The reflection in the pool is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's really more compositing work than it is CGI, honestly. But uh, compared to the green screen stuff you see now, I think this actually looks a lot better. It's it, like you can tell it's an effect when you look at it because the shots and what are intentionally over the top. But I thought it was pretty damn good, especially for when you, this is a lower budget movie. Hey, Trev, the screenwriter Ben Ramsey. You know what movie he directed? 
Uh, I thought the only other movie he was involved in was the Dragon Ball Evolution, wasn't it? No, he directed uh, Blood and Bone with Michael Jai White. Oh, all right. Well, good on him. That movie's awesome. Yeah, this was Ben Ramsey's uh, first screenplay. He had done like a lot of um, production stuff, so he was a uh, he was. This was kind of like the thing that you know kind of got him a start in terms of moving up from being like a production assistant, and you know, like I believe he's a production assistant on Silence of the Lambs. And then he did some other, like, behind-the-scenes work, other movies. But this was, like, the first time he, you know, was a major creative part in something. But, uh, and I, and I want to say, even though I don't know all the, it's been a while since I listened to the commentary, but uh, obviously we know um, Terrence Chang, John Woo were producers of this movie. Kirk Wong was the director. Wesley Snipes is uh Yeah, Almond Raw Films, which really weren't allowed around for very long. But, uh, yeah, so Wesley Snipes and... Obviously, um, you know, I found it very interesting that you kind of had Wesley Snipes Production Company, a young, at the time, a black screenwriter, kind of teaming up with these Chinese guys from Hong Kong to kind of make the, you know, and then with an American mostly cast. Like, I mean, they talk a lot about um, now how we need a lot of more diverse vo- verse, you know, voices behind the scenes of films. But uh, I think in a way, like this... Because I can't think of any other movie that, you know, really had such international, you know, co-production stuff going on, you know, as this movie did. We saw real quick Avery Brooks, who a lot of people know as, uh, I think, what, Mr. Falcon, and then also from uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always thought he did a great job as uh, the crime boss with his deep-ass voice. Looking yeah, at some think, trivia, uh, the role of Melvin was originally written for Martin Lawrence. Interesting. Huh. This movie think, would have been uh, unbearable with Martin Lawrence. <laughs> yeah. Cause, I think most people would know uh, Avery Brooks, or Avery, yeah, Avery Brooks from American History X. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel yes. like more people probably know him from Star Trek. Yeah, I oh. know him from Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> I, I meant more like average people. Okay. <laughs> Not might, might recognize, they might see him and go, "Who is that guy? Who is that guy?" And and you know, then you might look him up and say, "Oh, he's the teacher in American History X." No, I just thought this was funny. Like you have the joke where um, you know he uh, Melvin Smiley pulls into the wrong driveway because he lives in like this kind of generic suburb where all the houses look the same. But he pulls into his driveway, and of course, behind like the power tool wall and stuff. Um, you know, he has this whole hidden arsenal, but he, he put that whole arsenal of guns back in there with his garage door completely wide open. So anybody walking by would totally see his arsenal of guns right there. Uh, we're getting the best subplot of the movie mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> this is Big Top Video. You've had our copy of King Kong Lives for two weeks. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think really there's, you know, even up to this, this point, you know, we're, what, 10, 15 minutes in, even up to this point, we've seen a lot of comedy already, but I think I think just randomly you get this phone call from this annoying, harassing video store clerk. I think that really is kind of the sign of how deep this comedy is going to go and how absurd it's going to get, you know, moving forward. Here we have the... Uh the, you know, first appearance of Christina Applegate as his regular girlfriend. asks him to squeeze her butt. Right. <laughs> this was an interesting point in her career, too, I think. Well, I mean, it, it, it's like at this point, you know, she was definitely known because of Mary the Children and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, but I don't think people had quite accepted her as an actual comedic star yet. 
uh, she would become later. I feel like, I mean, I think like Anchorman really helped her with that. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think this, you know, it's just she's just there to be like kind of a sex symbol. But then you see in this that, oh, yeah, she's already kind of working on, you know, the goofy Jewish thing she's doing here and everything and showing a little more chops than just being the dumb girl, which is all she was known for for a while. Yeah, I was a, I was a huge fan of hers when I was a kid, obviously. And um, yeah, like I think this is actually one of her best roles in terms of showing how actually like versatile and, you know, like later on. I, I really I, she seems like one of those people that Hollywood never used. Right. You right, know, like I feel I like she should like still today she should be a bigger star than she is. Yeah, she had a couple stabs at sitcoms that you know didn't go over, like you know where she was starring later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I just I don't know. I, I just think she's a lot more comedically. You know, speaking of uh, just out of curiosity, because I've literally caught it on cable I think twice in like the last year, year and a half. Any fans here of uh, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead? Yeah, uh, yeah. I probably haven't seen it since the '90s, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I I remember like for real, obviously, because I was such a fan of hers at the time and I was young. But I remember like being jacked for that movie in theaters. Like, I could not wait, you know, for months and mm-hmm. months, and kind of just saw it. And at the time, I think I could, you know, because I was a young boy, I, I could only focus on her in it. But um, later on, you know, obviously watching it now, I think it's actually one of the better kind of teen flicks. You know, is my memory right? Is her romantic interest in that a young Josh Charles? Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's I don't know. It's just a very good you know because it's about it's also different too because it's about a teenage girl trying to blend into an adult workplace. So it's like a little bit different. It's not really. It is a it is a wacky teen comedy, but it's it's not as generic as you probably would think it would be. You know what I mean? And and you always. I always think Christina Applegate, like, I, I always think she's going to have her moment. Like, she always seems to have, like, a moment where I think, oh, she's going to get maybe a little bit bigger after this. And then it just kind of never happens. And especially yeah, yeah. I thought, like, Anchorman would be for sure that, you know, yeah. that, like, springboard for her. And it just kind of never really happened. I know. No, we, we, we've had a few glimpses of it, but let's talk about some Mark Wahlberg tattoos. I believe these were his real tattoos. I believe at the time, I think on his left arm is a like a weird kind of cartoonish character of uh, Bob Marley. And then on his chest is like this weird like necklace, which I've seen. I've noticed that weird necklace on him in other movies, too. But now you never see it. I think he's had all these bad tattoos since lasered off. I didn't know if anybody had paid attention to that or not. No, uh, no, I hadn't noticed. Yeah, it's just he's so shirtless in this movie. <laughs> he's, isn't that like his thing in every movie, kind of? I, even though obviously he's still in great shape and he's still pumped up, like yeah, like I, I feel like they don't showcase him like in that way as much anymore. But I, I, he just kind of plays more like a brawny meathead in general now. Well, I mean, in big, uh, not in, in Pain and Gain, he certainly was. Yeah. But that, I mean, that was that whole movie was was just about that. So yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about this time. Obviously, you know, I want to yeah, say we're even a few years removed from that. So yeah, I want I want to say the movie Fear. He was shirtless quite a bit. Uh, obviously, Boogie Nights because he's playing a porn <laughs> actor. This movie is like really like the most like he's just always shirtless for no no reason whatsoever. I love the name of this movie. <laughs> Taste the golden spray. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're now introduced to Hiro Nishi, the Japanese industrialist who actually turned filmmaker and put himself into the biggest Hollywood movie of all time. 
uh, taste the golden spray, which we we got to explain to people who maybe haven't seen this movie. Uh, this man is clearly a Japanese gentleman, probably in his late fifties, and he made a huge, like, romantic whatever epic, you know. So I looks I, like a Bond movie, maybe yeah. like with a name like that. Taste the golden spray, and yeah, and then what he spent like like all his money on the marketing actually is like everything yeah. is made out of actual gold right. for the marketing of the movie and. <laughs> And it's kind of it's kind of interesting there too. I wonder. Uh, I don't think they really cross the line too much with uh, making fun of Nishi, but he is Japanese, and it is interesting that you know the the creative uh, people behind this movie were were I guess technically Chinese. They're from Hong Kong, but uh, so I, I wonder. You know, I think they probably could have gone more caricature and gone you know, stereotypical or whatever. And I guess it is kind of stereotypical, but. I think you could have got away with a lot more in 98 than they did. So I think they held some restraint in uh, making fun of him. Yeah, I, I I wonder if that came down from somewhere. Um, because in the original script, uh, his daughter was supposed to be a high school student instead of a college student. And obviously, um, that was changed to making her a college student. They... Uh, the, the studio thought it was, you know, maybe a, a little too risque to, to all the things that end up happening with her and her character and Melvin to have her be uh, a high school girl. But it was supposed to be like an homage to uh, high school girls always appearing as anime in, in, carto- in cartoons in Japan. So, Yeah, I always wonder about that because it's kind of unclear. I, I never knew for sure not if she was in high school or college. But um, but she kind of she says she's doing her research in something that kind of tips it off. Yeah, but but she's clearly you know whatever school she's at, both the guys and girls they seem to be wearing like Catholic schoolboy school or uniforms. I mean, am I right or what? Now I think this is almost like a flawed plan because their plan was to kidnap the limo driver. So they could, you know, well, not kidnap the limo driver, but take the limo driver because Cisco clearly just shoots him right there. But their whole plan was they had their car broken down, you know, fake broken down on the side of the road so that when the limo driver rode by, he would stop it. How did they know the limo driver would want to stop and help them? That's like the only plot hole in this entire movie, really. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure there's more. Because <laughs> when I sat down and watched this other day, like I was expecting, and I've seen this movie 20 times or more, but you know I haven't seen it in the last few years. Uh, I was really expecting uh, the, them to like flag the guy down, or but but Melvin and Cisco are just arguing in the street, and, they, and he totally drives by, but then stops and backs up, and I don't know, it's just weird. Yeah, this looks like a high school, but it's. Yeah. Uh, supposed to be a college i guess they yeah they probably just held over the 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 uniforms either you know either the the high school thing was rewritten at the last minute or the the director still wanted to get that feel for it but you know was forced to at least say she was in college i mean either i'm sorry go ahead trev you know what I think is funny is that this is actually the uh, Mark Wahlberg's direct follow-up to Boogie Nights. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I just love that coming off of Boogie Nights, this is the script he read and was like, this is the next one, man. <laughs> <This> is- <laughs> well, he is Marky Mark. 
Yeah, it was a rough cut because then he followed this up with the Corrupter, which is again in that Hong Kong you know right. vein because it pairs him up with Chai Yun Fat, who Hollywood was very intent on making a thing after he was like the breakout star of the John Woo's Hong Kong films. And I feel like the Corrupter didn't really take off either. But then no. in 1999, Mark Wahlberg really came back in a big way with Three Kings. So yeah. and that's uh, China Chow playing the girl who was never really. I don't think she really went anywhere after this. Yeah, though, I, I mean, I know she kept, like, working, but in terms of the stuff I've seen, the only thing I can think of, she has, like, literally, like, a one-minute cameo in the movie Spun. Any of you guys ever see that movie Spun about the meth? I don't think you could even people? call it a cameo, if, like, when it's, like, a not-famous person, yeah, you know? but... It's like if I popped up in a movie, it wouldn't be a cameo. I would just be, you know... <laughs> <laughs> he would be... Well, I'm trying to be nice. Because she's really good. Because at the end of the credits, they say introducing China Chow. So I, this, I'm guessing this was her first, you know, feature film. Well, I mean, if you... Because we talked about this movie having its 20-year anniversary. If you guys want to feel uh, old again, China Chow is 43 now, so... Yeah. And I was going to say... So, um, this scene gets a little... Uh... <laughs> Me love you long time. <laughs> yeah, the, you. I was gonna say uh, hashtag time was definitely not up at this point in time of our <laughs> cinematic history. But again, I think it's all a setup with her boyfriend near raping her in the back of the limo, and then Mark Wahlberg immediately shoots him. And I think this is kind of the way this plays out, you know. I mean, obviously her boyfriend was a jerk or whatever, but the way eventually her and Mark Wahlberg kind of hit it off, even though he is the murderer of her boyfriend, I think that kind of, you know, you you just have to kind of roll with it in this movie because this is almost, like, there's a lot of elements of this film that remind me of, like, kind of the realities and minutia that you would find in a very poppy 90s comic book film, even though this obviously is not based on a comic book. We talk about Gump. For a minute yeah please do i like him a lot <laughs> yeah gump is actually i think one of my favorite characters i love the line china chow has says what are you guys supposed to be the spice boys because they all have like different colored outfits on and i kind of feel that like it was also in all the commercials yeah i kind of feel like that was almost like an intentional theme with the the crew of uh hit, i mean gump's kind of just like a side character who comes in but as far as the first the the main four hitman guys i feel like they all kind of were like almost assembled mm-hmm. like a boy band <laughs> and they all have their different colors like cisco definitely has his like maroon purplish color palette that he always works in mark uh, Wahlberg always dresses it seems like mostly in either yellows or greens his hairstyle was definitely worn by a lot of members of like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys around this time. Yeah. I think the problem with like the Lou Diamond Phillips thing we were talking about earlier is just like you watch this and he's so good and you realize he never really got to play characters like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he's always almost like in everything you could think of with him, it's always like a stoic kind of, you know, right. yeah, character. And like, then you see how, yeah, then you see how funny he can be and it's too bad more people didn't kind of try to capitalize on that with him. Because even these days, he's still he's still active, but he appears yeah. in all those all those movies that are like you know, um, like the the strong and the brave and the thirty three and you yeah. know like those kinds of movies. And he's just yeah, that like just like the stoic or sometimes mm-hmm. some occasionally they let him be like the the heart of the group or something. But yeah, he he doesn't get to he doesn't really get to like 
act much. You no, know? Like, yeah. he, he shows up on his... in TV shows as like the serious dad. You know. Yeah, he doesn't get to be like <laughs> as boisterous as he is in this. So. And going going back to the strength of the script right here, I think this is another great example of what this movie does. You know, and I actually went back and read some article, uh, some uh, reviews, excuse me, some reviews that came out about this movie the other day that were negative, and I just found it so funny because uh, so much of the time, like critics were saying, this was just a Tarantino ripoff and all that, and I thought that was weird because there's always been movies about hitmen, crime, underworld, everything, but in the '90s, if you made one after like Pulp Fiction, they always said you were a Tarantino ripoff. Whereas I think like the scene we just had with China Chow and you know kind of the comedy that's coming out of um you know her reading the very poorly written ransom note and whatever into the tape recorder i think the strength of this movie is it takes a lot of scenes that you've kind of seen in a lot of other movies and it kind of turns it on its head and gives it comedic twist so i really don't think there's any part of this movie that was aping tarantino whatsoever yeah i mean there was a definite there was a definite rash of tarantino ripoffs at this point you know like things to do in denver when you're dead and yeah. two days in the valley this this does not fit into that camp at all i don't no. think I have a, a quote here from Roger Ebert. Say, says, I guess you could laugh at this. You would have to be seriously alienated from he- normal human values and be nursing a deep-seated anger against movies that make you <laughs> think even a little. But you could laugh at this. Yeah, I don't know. Do you know who they uh, originally had in mind to play, uh, Pam? Who? When, uh, Debbie Mazar. Interesting. I think... She Most people would great. know from she. Yeah, I, I, you can see how she would be great in the role. Yeah, yeah. You might know her from if you're listening from uh, Goodfellas. She plays uh, Henry Hill's side girl. I mean, of course, you might also know her as one of Two Faces' henchmen in uh, Batman <laughs> yeah. Forever. Yeah, along with Drew Barrymore. <laughs> yeah. She she's spice, right? Because Drew yeah. Barrymore sugar. Yeah, sugar. Yeah. Yep. She's the one who makes them like she's got like the the pig like roasting on a spit, like in yeah. And here you have her very stereotypical kind of waspy uh, Jewish parents. <laughs> I love Elliot Goldness so much. <laughs> I do too. He really he really makes it. Yeah, he, like we're set up. You know, we're kind of introduced here to Pam's like super super. I guess really more her mom than her dad, but they're her super Jewish parents, and like they're kind of you know. A lot of the comedy gets derived from they don't approve of Melvin, you know, not being a Jewish guy. But obviously, you know, Pam is more with him because he's providing like good money or whatever. But let, let's let's take it. Let's slow this down. Let's talk about uh, King Kong lives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's talk about uh, Melvin's side girlfriend here. The awesome I always thought was underrated, uh, Leela Rashan. Uh, and and it's uh, I guess if we're going to speak in 2018 terms um you know melvin with pam he kind of has a he kind of just kisses her ass and always tries to take her you know make her happy or whatever but with his side girlfriend she's really much more demanding almost to the point that i think a lot of people would watch if say this movie came out right now there'd be a lot of gentlemen that would call melvin a cuck what do you guys think (laughs) What, what do you guys think about first of that melvin is po- definitely posited as not only the good guy in this movie but probably the best moralistic person in this entire movie but yet he cheats on his fiance uh really both his fiance and his mistress are both really gold diggers who demand money from him nonstop. but like what do you and then obviously 
for people who have seen this movie, you know, eventually there's kind of a romance, well, there is a romance that develops between him and a third woman, the high school slash college student, China Chow. Just for a second, what do you guys think of, the, you know, the kind of morality of him being involved with so many women in the movie, but yet still being the good guy of the story? Well, it's that old Hollywood trick, right, of where the morality is all over the map, but you're forgiving of it as long as everyone else around him is even worse. Yeah, this movie plays it so differently too though you know with uh it's just weird it's i feel like in in a typical hollywood movie that aspect of it would almost be played up more and you know melvin would have to like get redemption or something in order for us to really like him but this movie's just pretty comfortable with just playing it that's the way it is (laughs) um and yeah everyone else is just worse than him so we end up rooting for him I love that Jiro Nishi was going to k- kill himself, but was still willing to answer the phone when it rang. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was literally singing a traditional song, ready to commit traditional, I guess, Harry Carey by, you know, em- disemboweling himself with a knife. And then obviously Cisco, played by Lou Diamond Phillips and Gump, call to try to, you know, you know, demand the ransom and whatnot. Now, we'll, of course, we'll... we talked over the amazing explanation, too, of the Trace Buster, which is yeah. a great... Uh... And the trace buster buster. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because Gump is using a trace buster, which supposedly, that was always a big thing in movies back then about tracing phone calls. And again, just like the ransom note seating, I think this is, you know, kind of this movie gets underpraised in terms of things that, you know, you traditionally see in these movies that gets turned on its head. But Nishi, his company actually is the one who makes the trace buster. So he's got like, uh, you know, he's he's got well, I guess it plays off different in a, in a later scene, but he'll bust the trace buster bust, but we'll see. I do have a quick said... correction though, <laughs> goat. You called uh, you called it Harry Carey. Um, okay, <laughs> the, the announcer for the Cubs. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, oh, I'm uh, sorry. What what is the traditional Japanese suicide? Hepuku. Oh, I'm sorry, Hepuku. But it, well, har- sep- seppuku, seppuku, yeah. yeah. Well, har- harakiri is a an right. accurate alternative to that, but I, I, most people I don't think say Harry Carey. Okay, <laughs> I said Harry Carey. <laughs> I was gonna say, am I the only one that did see this in theaters? I don't remember if you. No, know. Yeah. I saw it opening weekend yeah. as well. Yeah, I like I, I would always go with my dad to the movies, and um, he was off Wednesdays and Thursdays, so like I definitely saw this like the Wednesday after it came out, so. Well, I remember, like, uh, and I think I've told Bird this, uh, but I remember when this came out, because this came out around the same time that Replacement Killers came out. Right. And I said I was really big in that Hong Kong action stuff at the time. I was getting all those. Do you, uh, Go, you probably remember Tay Singh, the the company that put oh, out yeah. all those Hong Kong films on VHS, and I was buying those all the time. And Yeah. And I was, like, I was all in for the Hong Kong style coming over here. And obviously I was super excited for Replacement Killers, because I was like, oh, man, Chai and Fat, I can't wait for everyone to see in America how awesome this guy is. And this one was more of like a novelty for me. I was like, yeah, I guess maybe this will be okay. And then Replacement Killers really wasn't very good. <laughs> it was kind of a No, I saw that. I saw that and, in theaters, too. The, yeah, that and this bad. one ended up feeling to me like, I was like, oh, even though this is like goofy, this one felt more like a Hong Kong film to me just because of the, the stylization and how crazy right. it was. I did not see this in theaters. Um I uh how I do you find been... how do you discover this movie if you don't see it in theaters? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my question. So that's uh I went to this is now cuz I haven't I have not even known about this movie for 
for very long, maybe two, three years, honestly. Um, We were at Fry's uh, Electronics going and buying. I was buying a bunch of movies and uh, and my wife was just kind of browsing around, too. And she happened by like one of the discount bins and was like picked up this movie and brought it over. She's like, hey, it's got Mark Wahlberg. We like him. And it's, you know, it was like a dollar fifty in the discount bin. And and she's like, I want this. I want to watch this tonight. And I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I, uh, and you know, like, did we say, I don't know if we said on this or if we said go right before we started recording, like the cover of this looks like it's yeah. like a movie like, like snatch <laughs> or like uh lock to- lock stock and two smoking barrels and you know so i was expecting like a like a guy richie type of thing and and even at the start of it i was like oh well it's like a lower you know lower budget maybe guy richie kind of thing and uh and then it started to get a little weird and and there's a scene coming up where it it did finally click for me uh what was going on but it was it took a bit but um yeah but it was a there's a scene and and I'll mention it when it comes up but where I was like yes okay I get what's going on now and and I love it yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah I uh it was just a random like oh dollar 50 sure I'll I'll buy almost any movie for a dollar 50 well you know I I don't have these numbers in front of me and I'm sure they're probably impossible to find now but I'm willing to bet that this movie probably had a pretty healthy like video life because yeah. This came on like you know this is right at the beginning of DVD as evidenced by the fact that the, all the video store stuff in the movie is about VHS. Right. But, uh, so so But uh, this is like yeah. right when DVD was hitting and I mean this is probably I'm sure this is the kind of film that probably got rented quite a bit on that new release rack at video stores because video stores were still the thing back then. Well, tra- well Trav too is I bet they made double of what they would have normally made cuz like you said like I bet many video stores, and I worked at a video store during the transitionary time between VHS and DVD. But it's almost like you had to buy double copies because you had to buy the VHS and the DVD. Mm-hmm. So I bet they made out like bandits on this. And like uh, speaking of home video, like this was um, like I couldn't wait for this movie to come out. Just I don't know if it's just the theater I normally went to or what, but I saw the trailer for this for months. I couldn't wait for it. So to me, it was like this huge movie, even though it really wasn't. I think worldwide or or maybe domestically it only grossed maybe like about 22 23 million dollars but i couldn't wait for this fucking thing to come out and i distinctly remember um because it was around the time i got a dvd player like within six months so i got a dvd player i distinctly remember buying the first dvd that was released of it for like back when new release movies on dvd were 24.99 and i gladly paid 24.99 for this on uh you know, at Best Buy and watch the shit out of the DVD. Later, there was the Superbit DVD. Oh, gotta have that. That was another $25. And then, like, way after that, um, like, probably whatever it was, six or seven years after this movie came out, uh, I was, I, then I got the sickness of buying movies for my Sony PSP, which no longer works. So I do have a PSP copy of the big hit. And then finally, the Blu-ray. So I've literally <laughs> bought this movie, what, one, two, three, four times on home video. And so, I mean, just doing quick math right there. there I, I've spent at least probably $75 on this movie on home video. <laughs> and I, I, had a, I had a VHS, and then I actually bought the Blu-ray specifically to do this. Yeah, but, you did. I appreciate that, Bert. Yeah, yeah it, it's, but it's, I mean, when I was younger like when i was a teenager and i had this on tape it, it is one of those movies i watched a lot 
I mean, I just I just remember watching it all the time, like literally, and obviously. When I was younger, and then like you know, whether I was a student or just whatever I was at the time, um, I wasn't working forty hours a week, obviously, so I had a lot more free time. And I would just like, especially like the early days of DVD. And I don't know if this was like it for you guys when you guys first started collecting movies on DVD, but um, it was like when that sweet spot of when you only had maybe like about fifty movies in your collection. Would you guys rewatch the same movies like three oh, yeah. or four times a oh, year? Yeah. Like I did. Yeah, man, I, would, I I exactly remember that watching. Like that's what you know. Some of the movies that are burned into my head as favorites, like you know, The Fifth Element is another one like that that I just watched all mm-hmm. the time because it's because yeah. it's what I had. Yeah, there was no, a time there's... where I watched like the first four or five seasons of The Simpsons just over and over and wow. over and over because it was some of the only DVDs that I had. Back when I was for, in college, me, and I I carried my DVDs around in like a couple of Tupperware bins. Wow. <laughs> For me, I, I did that a lot with VHS. Like, there's certain Godzilla movies, and yeah, like I used to tape The Simpsons off TV, and like I would just like whatever that episode was that week, I'd watch maybe two or three times that week. That's just I don't know that that now there's too much stuff that you can always watch. Oh, I was gonna and, say. I'm sure you guys have done the same thing where like you want to watch something but between streaming and your own yes. collections like by the time you pick something to watch it's like oh, you could have watched yes. something <laughs> you know yes. it's time to go and it's time to go to bed or something and you're like oh well I guess I'm not e- watching even, anything even before blu-ray when it had like gotten to the point where I had like whatever like 400 DVDs I would spend a, an hour and a half trying to pick something out what to watch. It'd be like a Sunday night. This would always happen to me because I wouldn't, you know, I'd want to have a little bit more weekend before you go back to work. And I, I'd sit there for like an hour, hour and a half, picking between all my DVDs. I finally get something, and then it would get to the point where like, oh, it's getting so late, I can't even watch a long movie now. You ever do that too, where you're like you're searching your DVDs or whatever for like a yeah, it's like what, what can I watch this like an hour and twenty minutes or yeah. So you end up almost spending as much, you know, the equal time watching something as you were looking for something. Yeah. Now, it got real cartoony there for a second, because now this is, you know, we should say this movie, like, it throws up, like, you know, it kind of breaks up the narrative by, you know, the different days of the week. So now it's Saturday, and it kind of pokes fun at suburban life. There's literally, like, a choreographed shot of, like, eight or nine guys all coming out of their houses at the same time, mowing their lawns with the exact same lawnmower. And they all had electric lawnmowers, it seemed like. It seemed like all their lawnmowers had extension cords. Have you guys ever seen an electric lawnmower? No, that seems like the worst idea. Yeah. But it's just also, like, that joke. electric weed whacker. Yeah, same here. Yeah. That joke, it's funny how many, like, films of this time period love to do that joke, like, make fun of the suburbs. It's just strange that, you know, at this point, the suburbs have been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, this is almost the turn of the century. This is not, you know, 1950s. People still weren't over, like, making fun of that that album. Yeah, this is is the kind of humor that you saw in Edward Scissorhands, like, Mm -hmm. geez, how, how... That was, like, way before this. That was, like, eight years before this. Yeah. <laughs> we should also quickly point out, because, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that our listeners care about, I'm sure. This, the score for this film is done by uh, Mr. Graham Ravel. Oh, yeah. And let's face it, if you're watching a film from the uh, late 90s or early 2000s, there's about an 85% chance you're hearing a score by Graham Ravel. That guy was, like, 
it all was. over the place back but, then. But and I, of course, there's usually a, a ska song sandwiched in there somewhere. Yeah, there's a for for a, a Hong Kong director and you know some um, you know like Wesley Snipes production company. Like, there's a lot of weird, super white musical choices in this. Like, this was a time period where where they were trying to push ska's being like a you know. So there's like a lot of Save Ferris and. You know, just weird ska songs thrown in the background is, and it, and it, I, or maybe it's just the director being a foreign guy. Maybe he he was introduced to that music and he thought it sounded comical. I don't know, but yeah, or maybe he's, or maybe he's like just doing what he thinks is like, considered cool. Here. Yeah. Now, what do you guys think? Yeah. Like, to go back to just a second to like the Grammar Vell, right? So here's a guy who, like, let me just read some of the films he's done, right? Like, uh, Child's Play Two, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. The Crush, Hard Target, The Crow, Tank Girl, Mighty Morphin Partners of the Movie, From Dusk Till Dawn, The Craft, Spawn, uh, you know, the Idle Hands, Bride of Chucky. This is a guy who's done so many movies we all know and a lot of movies we love. And yet, can anybody think of like a Graham Ravel theme? <laughs> well, the, well, he's talented because he he makes different types of music for all. I'd say my favorite stuff that he ever did was actually the From Dusk Till Dawn score because it was it was pretty memorable. In terms of a horror thing, the we, we kind of like the last few minutes we're talking. There was like a lot of like where uh, Mark Wahlberg was trying to hide the uh, the schoolgirl. He's pulling her in and out of rooms as uh, Christina Applegate's walking in and out. Like this was like almost some like like really like old timey comedy here. What did you guys think about that? Or, like the like farce Scooby Doo episode. Yeah, it was like really old timey. I I love it this is where the movie started to kind of win me over just with like, just how, yeah, like how kind of campy and, uh, and over the top and, and old timey the, the, the comedy was it, it, it's got a, I don't know. There's some, it's got a very quaint, I guess, very familiar kind of quality about it to me. Yeah. And it's just it's just interesting to see it in a movie that is like literally about hitmen and a kidnapping. And I should say <laughs> one thing: uh, th- there was like a lot of weird kidnapping movies for a while. I want to say like in the late '90s, early 2000s, to the point where like I got tired of there just being kidnapping movies. But I have to say, this is by far my favorite kidnapping movie of all time. Just just because it has a lot of other elements in it too. It's not just all about a kidnapping, obviously, but. I've never heard anyone say this is my favorite kidnapping movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's always a first for everything on the movie. I mean, if that's or... a genre, I guess I would say like ransom. Yeah. High and low. The, ransom, the Man rare, uh, the rare, actually good Ron Howard movie. I agree with that. I um, I actually saw Ransom. Uh, just just a random memory coming back to me, but I actually saw Ransom in a theater where like the aspect ratio wasn't properly set up. So I was like, "You ever have this happen to you where they they don't have it set up the right way?" Back, you know, this happened with this don't happen anymore now with digital stuff. But when there was film prints, they would have to kind of center the frame on the screen a certain way. So like, I saw Ransom like all fucked up. So like, I just literally saw the boom mic over and over. And like at the time, I didn't really understand it was because the projection was fucked up. So I really thought Ron Howard made a movie where like forty percent of the time you could just see the boom <laughs> mic. <laughs> like I criticized the shit out of it for a while until I re- you know I read off. Right, there we realized. go. I got Trace Buster 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 for their ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ishii actually has like what Nishi I should say. Nishi has like three or four Trace Busters, and like these things are busting the traces that they're trying to you know because Gump only has like one Trace Buster that they bought at Radio Shack or whatever. No, he's got the Trace Buster Buster because he's got the 
What if they have a Trace Buster Buster? Oh, I've got the Trace Buster Buster. <laughs> yeah, there's like different models, but Nishi has them all like all lined up. Now it's kind of like out of focus, but we kind of see in the foreground. We see uh, Bokeem Woodbine's apartment here, and he's just he's picking out a porno to jerk off to. Like he just had a quick phone conversation with uh, Mark Wahlberg there, but uh, I kind of wanted to see more of his life. <laughs> In a weird way to see yeah. what other well, like, really, and yeah. just I'm right, sure if you go on to like uh, Pornhub or something, you can find, <laughs> find exactly what he was doing. <laughs> you know, you know, Jelly said earlier uh, to make you feel older. China Chow plays a schoolgirl, and this is now 43. But I was actually shocked when I was like, I don't know why. After watching this other night, I got curious about Bokeem Woodbine and his kind of mini Hollywood comeback he has going on. But uh, I was actually shocked to find Bo- Bokeem Woodbine is only 44 years old right now. He was really mm-hmm. in a lot of movies, like, in his very early 20s. He looks exactly the same. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what's weird. I was, uh, and I was thinking that, too, because I, like, I was like, when I realized this movie was 20 years old, and I'm like, well, to me, other than he's kind of, like, a little bigger and beefier now, um, you know, like, when I watched this movie when I was, like, young... Uh, I thought all these guys were like super jack, super pumped. But you look at them; I mean, they're all in great shape, but they're all like really like lean and skinny compared to like how guys are now. But I was just like, yeah. So like, like I really thought Bokeem Woodbine would be in his early fifties by now, and I saw he was only forty four. I was like, well, good on him, man. I hope he has a uh, you know a little more bit of a run going on here in films because I really liked him, and I really liked him in uh, movies like uh, Dead Presidents and just some of his early stuff he was in. And uh, I think he's both. And both good and dramatic and, like, kind of comedy or, like, you know, action-type roles. What do you guys overall think, like, uh, of Mark Wahlberg as an actor? Because I have always, to, to me, he's one of the most confusing big stars in the world because I don't know if I can think of anyone at his level of fame who's got a more, like, lopsided ratio. Sometimes he's really good. And sometimes embarrassingly bad in movies. Uh, he's mostly bad. Uh, I wouldn't say sometimes that. he's good. I, <laughs> see, I don't know. I think it's more. I actually think it's more fifty-fifty. I I think it's Trev. I think it's more his choice of materials that yeah. stops him from doing good work. And I think maybe the worst thing because I mean I remember when he started. Like I I didn't want to give him the time of day because like oh fucking Marky Mark's going to be an actor. And I saw him in the movie Fear, and I was like, he still was kind of Marky marking that, but I was like, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, he's not bad. And it really was obviously Boogie Nights, where I was like, okay, he can be a real actor. But, and, you know, I liked Boogie Nights at the time for what it was, but the first movie that, like, really I ever liked, like, the movie a lot, and I liked him in it, was this. And after this, like, I pretty much had an open mind. And for a while, I really liked some of the stuff he was doing, you know, because, like we said before, he did The Corrupter and The Three Kings after this. But, yeah, like, now it's just... just have. And I've seen the, the majority of his movies. Um, the only one I think I really haven't seen is the Oil Rig movie and Patriot's Day, which I do want to see both those. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But, like, yeah, he just... I don't know, it just... Like I feel I said, like he's become a lot more lazy in recent years. I feel like yeah, he actually had yeah. a, a run there for a while where he was really trying and, and being mostly yes. good and everything, and then just kind of, I don't know. Yeah, once he became maybe a star, he kind of just started coasting a little bit. Right. I agree with that. I, I think the worst thing yeah, that happened at, to him. I mean, you know, you had, like, uh, the other guys, the fighter, um, even the first Ted and Pain and Gain. I felt like, yeah, he was, he was trying, mm-hmm. you know? And then you get into, like... 
Transformers and the Gambler and Entourage and Ted Two and Daddy's Home and Deepwater Horizon. It's like feels like he just wants to, and he's not even bad in any of these movies necessarily. It's just he's just he's just boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, he like just wants to get paid, and and yeah, like I think he's mostly fine. But, you know, there was there was a period of time where, you know, like coming off of that other guys and pain and gain run, I'd have been really excited for the next Mark Wahlberg movie. And now I'm like, oh, there's a Mark Wahlberg movie, you know, well, even like, before that, you think about he was taking. So, I mean, he was doing stuff like I Heart Huckabees or the Lovely Bones. He was like picking interesting movies to be in. Right. And it doesn't feel like he's willing to do that anymore. Yeah. I, mean, I am confused by his Oscar nomination for The Departed. Why? He was great in it. I, 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 was he? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I was actually all, I was totally down for when they were floating that idea of his character getting a sequel. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah. I was in for that. Right? I mean, I, would, I like him in it, but it's just such a, it's not really much of a performance. I guess. Well, I was just surprised of his nomination because in my mind, when I saw the movie or whatever, I just thought he was like barely in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I thought he was dude. such a minor character. I mean, yeah, it's just they picked, him is the best supporting over you know jack nicholson and another movie I th- strange, yeah so. another like early role because obviously early on he you know i think big hit was probably his first like pop movie where he was really doing a movie just for fun but early on uh another movie i was really impressed with his performance was i really liked him in the basketball diaries did any of you guys ever see that oh, yeah. yeah 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 he was really good in that as well so that's this might be another movie I think is very underrated for its time. Like I enjoyed it a lot when I I remember I saw it when it came out. I enjoyed it a lot at the time, but now that I look back on it and there's a lot less movies like that being made, I I, I like that movie quite a bit. Well, uh, Basketball Diaries was a big deal when it came out. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, I mean Leo Fever was starting to hit, but and yeah, now I feel like nobody really even remembers it. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about uh, Three Kings. I feel like that's been un- unfortunately kind of forgotten. Right. I mean, it was a big deal at the time, and I just feel like it's kind of, uh, I don't know, floated out of the ether for some reason, which is too bad. It's a great movie. Yeah, I actually so, caught it a couple times on cable in the last couple of years, and uh, it's just infinitely watchable when you come across it. Mm-hmm. Now, now here we have uh, Cisco's on the hunt to you know find the kidnappers, even though he literally is the kidnapper. We got to talk about the fact that Gump lives like in an airplane hangar or something, <laughs> like just filled with like ju- like I love it. I like I almost want to live in an airplane hangar myself. But he has like a little corner. He's watching TV and rap videos, and then Cisco. He's got breaks a, in. like a, one of those like little Coca Cola coolers that are like mm-hmm. at the front of a grocery store. Mm-hmm. And do, do white people still wear Kangol hats to like, try and look cool? <laughs> yeah, Tarantino does, I think. <laughs> You know, Kango is one thing that's kind of ever since, like, after Jackie Brown, I think. I think Kango's kind of fallen off because I, I don't even see that many black people wearing Kango hats anymore. Do you guys? I mean, as long as Samuel Jackson's around, they'll they'll be in business. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> yeah, I almost think Lou Diamond Phillips <laughs> could have fit into a uh, Tarantino movie in the 90s. but I, Well, I feel like Lou Diamond Phillips now would be, like, someone Tarantino would go for. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, like I feel like Tarantino, like, he, even though he still uses some people, and, like, older people in his movies, he uses them in, like, super small parts now to where 
nobody really gets like the comeback vibe the way like Travolta. Well, kind of seems like he like he he got like the come like he used the old people he wanted to use, and now he doesn't seem as interested in that. It, right. I feel like now, especially as he thinks his career is winding down, because you know now we hear about him talking to, like Tom Cruise and stuff. I feel like he wants to use the big stars that he hasn't worked with yet. Yeah. I think the only per- and I know you guys don't like a lot of his movies, which is fine. But I think the only person that still like kind of has a boner for using old people is maybe Rob Zombie, even though he didn't really use them in his. Oh last yeah, movie, no, but, for, uh, yeah. yeah, Zombie. Well, Christopher Nolan even. Um, yeah. He always has kind of like an old B movie actor in there somewhere. Yeah, a lot of people forget he put Anthony Michael Hall in The Dark Knight. I think it was. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Tom Berenger in uh, oh, Inception yeah. and. Eric Roberts. Eric yeah, Roberts. and uh, William William Devane showed up as the president <laughs> in the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Now here we have where um, the schoolgirl and Mark Wahlberg the, start to hit it off. This is the scene. Yeah, the very <laughs> disturbing is, is scene. The scene that, that won me over on this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of Jelly's schoolgirl fantasies. Yeah. <laughs> I I have to admit, um, I don't know. I like I don't know like if it's just the um, the uniform or what, but I have to admit that like ever since I really ever since I've seen this movie, I always I always uh, thought China Chow was pretty awesome. Like, and I just don't know why it was she didn't do any more. I'm just going to chalk it up to late '90s, early 2000s uh, Hollywood racism that she didn't have more of a career. <laughs> Because I think for a, a you know introducing role, I think she uh, you know she kind of hit it out of the park here. But please, somebody, let, let's talk about this cooking scene here. It is the weirdest. Yes. Uh, like foreplay scene in a movie of all yeah. time. <laughs> but but they don't even have sex. But it is totally a foreplay buildup. And, and, like, again, I, I just don't think the likability now you could get away with this of a guy two-timing his fiance, And now, at this point, now he's he's got a, literally a schoolgirl that he's, you know. Yeah, it's hard to describe what's even what they're doing here. <laughs> but, wow. uh, yeah, this is, like, this is the scene where this movie gets, like, just, it, it's, it's. This is the scene where it kind of goes off the rails in like the best possible way. Yeah. I mean from from here on there there's just all kinds of crazy scenes throughout the rest of the movie but like, <laughs> but yeah it's just I mean having a a sensual um stuffing of a turkey uh yeah. is like look at him jam that stuffing in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are they massaging it? Yeah, I was just shocked to look at IMDb right now and realize China Chow only has ten acting credits, and one of those. Well, I, guess, I was going to say, I was going to say you were like saying she didn't go anywhere, but she did appear in Frankenfish. Hold yeah. on, hold on. I have her Wikipedia up, and maybe I'm dumb, but okay. So the I'm gonna the first two sentences of this paragraph, and the second sentence I don't understand. Chow made her acting debut in 1998, starring opposite Mark Wahlberg in the big fit, the The big big hit. (laughs) In 2004, she was shot by a house in Frankenfish. What? What? What what does that mean? (laughs) Didn't you, Bert? Haven't you seen Frankenfish? No. Oh. 
Am I the only she one who's was, seen Frankenfish? I have shot seen by a house. It's, a, it's like it's a house explodes and like propels like a, a like a tank or something into her. But uh, what kind of sentence is that? What kind of description is that? She was shot by a house. Well, if you click into it, the Wikipedia for Frankenfish, even in the plot description, it says, "While everyone par- panics, Mary declares she has an idea on how to get off the bo- boathouse. Before she can explain, she is shot by the house." I'm totally it, well, it not. It sounds like that's not even what really happened. Bird, are you aware who wrote Frankenfish? No. Simon Barrett. <laughs> oh man, is it? Uh, is it good? Yeah, man, that was one of the like early because that's like 2004. That was one of the early movies that really got the whole like Sci-Fi Channel original thing rolling, where people were like, "Oh man, this is th- these are becoming like events on Saturday nights now." I love Frankenfish. So she she gets killed in an explosion from like the house exploding. She doesn't get shot by the house. Well, that's just another way to say it, I guess. <laughs> no, it's that's, not. That is no way that a person would say it. <laughs> well, whoever wrote both the Wikipedia things. <laughs> no, the cooking scene. I guess I got to bring this up. They spill on them an amazing amount of what looks like Hershey's chocolate syrup on China Chow's legs. Mark Wahlberg hoists her up onto a table and slowly wipes it off. Like, what was that 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 brown sauce supposed to be? Does anybody know? Because I could never figure out what it was. I don't know. Is it some kind of gravy? Or? It'd be like a soy sauce or it, a glaze of some kind. I mean, yeah, um, like, like I took it in the recipe. It was supposed to be some type of soy sauce or glaze. But I think what they probably use is more like chocolate sauce on her legs. But it just was so strange because he's supposed to be cooking a kosher meal or whatever. And now here, because he burned it up because she tried to escape and he had to tie it all up again. He got takeout food and then now he's just going to pretend like he actually cooked this. I see this happen a lot in you know movies and TV shows. You know, people get like takeout food and they try to convince people that they made it. Like, has anybody heard of this happening in real life? um by people no but uh i actually read an article about some restaurant uh like a local restaurant and i don't know not here but somewhere yeah um and it turned out that the fried chicken they were serving like was just popeye's chicken (laughs) yeah i heard about that (laughs) now now here we have a great scene where can we we just go back one second and i I need to ask bird a question (laughs) bird if it wasn't here then what makes it a local restaurant well, it was local somewhere. <laughs> I mean, like it was like a mom and pop. It wasn't. It was like a mom and pop place. It wasn't, it wasn't like, like a, a chain, is what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I actually heard of that story too. It was like two months ago, right, Bird? Yeah, yeah. Now, here but, we yeah, we, we saw Crunch uh, arguing yeah. and yelling at someone for the right lotion. Yeah, because he's at the airport trying to get away, and he's trying to warn Mark Wahlberg that Cisco set them all up, and he's going to kill them all. And we keep, we should keep in mind that Antonio Sabato Jr. just disappeared for this whole, for like three fourths of the movie, <laughs> so he we never even see like how he's reacting to the crisis of Cisco, you know, throwing them all under the bus or the kidnapping. But yeah. Uh, Crunch, he, he's yelling at the guy. He doesn't want an aloe vera lotion. He needs something with uh, lanolin in it because I guess lanolin is better to jerk off with. I don't know. I know, well, I know it's uh, it's what women use when they're breastfeeding. Oh, okay. Fun, yeah, fun fact for you there. So. Now, 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 Crunch says everyone should just give up their love life and masturbate. Yeah. 
So <laughs> literally the best crunch line was like real early in the movie because you know the the all the hitmen they know Melvin's situation of his two women and how he's getting played by both of them. I think the best line was crunching. Tells Mark Wahlberg, straight jacking saves you that mad cream. <laughs> is, it a, uh, is it a deleted scene where we see what Antonio Sabato's been up to? Because I have the memory of it, but I can't remember if it's in the film or not, where we see that he's it actually like, like cross-dressing. Because we don't oh, know. I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. That is, that, I'm pretty sure it's a deleted scene because, okay. um, yeah. I can't remember if that's on the Blu-ray or not. It might be on the D. I know it's a, it's, it's, it's on the DVD because I definitely know it, so it's, yeah. it's probably on this DVD. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, unless it's on there and it's just not. Unless I'm looking at the back of the Blu-ray. And again, the reason I know that is because this goes back to what you were saying, Goat. This is the period when when you bought DVDs and all of them had deleted scenes, and you you just watched right. them all because right. you're like, well, this is awesome. I deleted scenes. What's that? I don't. Well, how can you have deleted scenes? And now we just take that stuff for granted. And so many I don't even watch deleted I, scenes. Yeah, I know. So many. I was gonna say so many movies I've bought in the last few years. I just don't even bother watching those because I'm like, well, I guess they're deleted for a reason. I know. <laughs> yeah, looking at the back of the Blu-ray, it looks like they just have the two commentary tracks that were on the DVD but not any of the other special features. Yeah, the DVD actually has some documentaries and other stuff. Yeah. So I, I guess I should... I have my DVD in a box somewhere in the garage. I guess I should dig that out sometime and check it out again. Here's Elliot Gould going going for it. <laughs> yeah, I think this is great. Like, we have all these hitmen that are claiming, you know, Lou Diamond Phillips and a couple other hitmen, and they're all claiming that they're co-workers of Melvin... And uh, there are all these guns are being pointed at each, you know, everybody's pointing guns at each other under the table. Elliot Gould is completely drunk. Like, they try to stop him from drinking throughout the movie, but he finally gets drunk. And I love the speech he gives when he talks about <laughs> the, this, because basically what's happened is the mother's convinced Pam to dump Melvin because he's not Jewish. But um, now Elliot Gould, and he's great. He, he gives a speech where he's talking about, uh, this young man Melvin, who he likes, who has a Rain Man quality about him, <laughs> comes. He to compares him. it to a guess who's coming to dinner. Yeah, he says comes to him like a young Sydney Poitier, and guess who's coming together. <laughs> and then he starts talking about how he loves that he's seen all these men of different races and creeds around the same t- table <laughs> in, in, a, in a tolerable environment. I, like I just think this is some of the greatest, greatest screenwriting I've ever seen in any movie. <laughs> This is a good bit, too, where, like, they're worried about the tablecloth coming off the glass table because they're all holding guns underneath. Right, right. It's it's played perfectly. And I love the special effect when, because uh, basically, okay, Elliot Gould just puked all over uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. And I love that effect. purple, though. What was that, Jill? Because he's been drinking prune juice this whole time. Right. It, yeah. it should have been purple. But it looked like he had, like, chunks of, like, tomatoes or something he threw up. But uh, but yeah, I love that special effect of, and I don't know how they did it, of the glass flies up because Melvin shotguns the two other hitmen through the table. So you see the glass like come up and fly at the guys. I don't know if that's an optical effect, a stunt, or what. But like, I don't Here's know. Here's your uh, purple puke. Uh, yeah. Well, the I, first time it was like yellow. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know how they did that without those guys getting a fucking face full of glass there. But I thought that was great. Where do you guys? Where do you guys think Elliot Gould ranks the big hit in like his filmography? <laughs> Probably in like His the top three. So all over the map. Yeah. <laughs> Who the hell knows? No, I, I bet Elliot. For real though, I bet Elliot Gould shot this movie. For, like he was on this movie probably two or three days. He probably doesn't even remember doing. Oh it. yeah. 
I could I could legit see him like meeting Mark Wahlberg now and being like, we should work together someday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I will I will say in terms of this reminding me of another movie, and I can't off the top of my head I can't remember which one came out first, but this scene does remind me where they're having the shootout in the house. This actually does remind me of the movie from uh, the point. I'm sorry, the scene from Gross Point Blank, where um, John Cusack Blank was. Definitely before this. Yeah. John Cusack and uh, Dan Aykroyd have a shootout inside a house, and they're kind of, like, talking to mm-hmm. each other. That's, like, the only thing in this movie that really reminds me of, like, another movie, you know? Oh, I don't know why. I always thought this was a great bit where Mark Wahlberg drives out through the garage door, and he's, like, got the garage door on the front of his car when he pulls out. I always thought that was, like, a cool <laughs> I just, little gag. I just looked it up, and I, and I was, like, so... I mean, I was right, but I was, like, so sure. I'm, like, oh, that was, like... Gross Point Blank was definitely before this. I thought, like, years. This It was a one year before this. Yeah, I didn't so, realize Gross Point Blank was 97. I was thinking more, like, 94 or something. Yeah, so, so I mean, I mean, I doubt that they ripped one off from the... You know, and it's just... It's just a logistics thing of shootout dialogue. Gross Point Blank is another movie that, to me, in an even bigger way than this, right? Not to get on a tangent of another film, but talk about a movie, like, a movie that was like a minor hit, but then became like everyone knows it, at yes. least from like our age, and like everyone watched it 300 times, I feel like. The, Especially it was on cable all the time. Oh, yeah. It was another early DVD and everything. And yeah. That's what I loved about this period of time. Like, like back then, I mean, obviously like I've seen like three great movies in the last week. So I don't want to be like Mr. Eighties and nineties and say movies all suck now. But, uh, but like definitely back then, like it was like, I would see movies like all the time back then that like I absolutely loved. And it just seemed like nobody else really saw them. But then like two or three years later, you would hear people talk about them because of the whole like home video and cable thing. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. For me, it was just like movie channels would just always played like the same five movies. Right. Well, that's what that's like what the, like, they uh, still was, do that. Yeah, well, but it was always like. <laughs> but nobody watches day, it like Broken Arrow and Assassins with Banderas and Stallone. Like those were like just on all the time. I mean, Goat and I had this conversation on a previous episode about how some of the movies that to us are like for our generation are just like beloved classics like Clue and, yeah. uh, you know, The Burbs and, you know, stuff like that. That's because they were just always on. You just would see them constantly. The Last Dragon was like that when I was a kid, too. It was just on HBO like every day. And it just uh, now the thing is, like we said, there's there's just more movies since then, so you don't have the same things repeating over and over again. Yeah, like I did, you know, and I kind of miss that the whole because like, I think you're right, Trev. What you said when people just don't, you know, movie channels are exactly the same; they still show, you know movies over and over. But obviously, because there's different ways and different options of how you can watch entertainment now, like they're just not relevant anymore. Nobody actually watches them anymore. But, uh, I mean, when I was younger, I would go over to a friend's house and we would hang out. And we would just put on HBO, and if you know, if Clue came out again, we'd watch Clue again. And you know, I think there is something to obviously the the movie graveyard being a nostalgia based show. We're talking about older films and whatnot. I think there is something about that, and I think it's I think there's like a sweet spot of like our generation, or maybe people just five to ten years older than us, where where like. There are movies that are hits, but only they were only movie channel hits because I have to say, like, uh, every couple days when I look at the stats for this podcast, every couple days, Trev, I've been meaning to tell you this, somebody downloads Clue, dude. And mm-hmm. yeah, it just, it's a movie that, like, never was really big, but it never really dies because people remember it, you know? And now Ryan Reynolds is going to remake it. Exactly. I thought this was a great bit too, where where you know coincidentally they crash into uh, Lila Rashan's car, his 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 uh, mistress's, 
and uh, you know a, a, a bag of money or a suitcase full of money comes out, and also within I guess it was in the suitcase was the, the tape of King Kong's lives. They, yeah, they were, and he's mostly mad that they were going to keep King Kong lives. Exactly, not the twenty five grand in cash, but yeah. Goat, I'm surprised that you've never seen King Kong lives. I, mean, I just figured that was a given. I've seen parts don't, of for it. Your, your own sake, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If there's I, a King Kong movie no, that great. he would like, though, I think it's got that like '80s sleaze that he likes. Yeah, like I, I, I mean, I've seen parts of it. If not, I'm sure I've seen it in its entirety in chunks. I've just never sat down from beginning and end and watched it. King Kong lives with all this shit that, like, in, I feel like in the last five years, like a lot of shit has come to Blu-ray. Uh, with a lot of these smaller labels, and I'm kind of shocked that King Kong Lives has hasn't got a re-release on Blu-ray. It's odd that one and the '76 uh, uh, right. Dino De La Rosa's one. Neither of those got re-released, and I, I thought for sure at least the nobody 76- wants to have to sit through them to do a new transfer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought at least the '76 version uh, would get a re-release when Skull Island came out, but yeah, there well there yeah, were some foreign re-releases of of King Kong '76 on Blue. But they always got out of print, and I've I've tried to snag them a couple of times on eBay auctions, and I always lost, so I never did get a copy of it. Now I lo- I love that we kind of you know this feels like this is the conclusion of the movie. They got away from all the things. Uh, it, it it appeared like Cisco died in a car you know car wreck, but obviously he wasn't dead. He got up and carjacked Lila Rashan's car. But as far as the, these characters know, they're riding off into the sunset. And I love that Mark Wahlberg says he's going to go return his copy of King Kong Lives. And then if China Chow is waiting for him outside, they'll disappear together. I thought that was really... So he's returning the tape, so he does have a moral compass. Yeah. like It's like a very nice, natural conclusion. But then Lou Diamond Phillips shows up and obviously ruins it. And I have to say, like a lot of this, like the ending action part, that really is just... Kind of Lou Diamond Phillips versus uh, Mark Wahlberg, Cisco versus Melvin. I have to say, I'm really impressed by a lot of the action beats in this. Well, all this stuff in the forest was actually filmed in a uh, in like a public park, mm. and they had to close the park down for two weeks to get all the filming done, and uh, kind of pissed off the uh, the residents because they weren't allowed to use their park for two weeks. Yeah, to because uh, <laughs> Mark Wahlberg went to. But then once they saw the movie, and they're like, we understand. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is just like a tidbit, and I was just wondering if you guys ever picked up on this on the other times you've watched this film. But Mark Wahlberg has a really, like, weird, unnatural hair color in this movie. Like, it's kind of orangish, yeah. reddish, brownish. Have, have yes. any of you guys ever noticed that as well? Yeah, I'm trying to make him look like a redhead almost. It's it's odd. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about his jacket, too? Yeah, what is this jacket? What brand is this? I don't know, but it's got like two. It looks like hands making gun uh, symbols. Yeah, it's very odd. It needs an origin story. Um, the bit, you know, the the big hit, the beginning, so we can find out where he got the jacket. Well, I guess at one point it's, Melvin that's had a trademark like a tragic of, uh, backstory. The trademark of all all origin stories, you know, uh, X Men Origins. We get to find out how Wolverine got his jacket. Solo, we're gonna get to find out how Han Solo gets his jacket. Yeah, we need we need the big hit beginnings so we can find out where he gets his jacket. 
Now I loved all that stuff there where the car rolled over the tree branch and all that and Melvin that was ducked. Cool. Yeah. yeah, like I just thought yeah, all this was good. really great. Like I feel like it really holds up. And the little bits of kind of special effects work that are in it, I think, even hold up, too. There's something about, I think the reason, like, the few optical CGI whatever effects in this movie hold up as well as they do, I think it's because, you know, they did it and then they transferred it back to film, which kind of gave it a, you know, a fuzzier, more film-like look, which kind of helps it blend This is a, such a great bit where he dropped the King Kong Liz tape. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he really, he literally risks his life to run and yeah. dive in front of the car just in time. Because basically, for people who haven't seen the movie, Lou Diamond Phillips, it's all downhill, but Lou Diamond Phillips is driving this car. Here's a great effect. Obviously, it was in all the trailers. That actually is pretty well done, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just blends in. The lighting, everything blends in. It just really... And it helps, too, that they don't linger on it, obviously. But, uh, yeah, he, he literally risks his life uh, as... as you know, I think that was just inventive. I mean, it's not like huge budget the way a lot of action stuff is now, but just literally, you know, a guy using a car as a weapon trying to run another guy over in a forest. I think it's pretty cool. Here we have Melvin's car dropping off from the cliff overhead. It was dangling off the cliff and it falls. And again, now we have like another time where we think Cisco died. This time they really try to fake you out into thinking Cisco died. And if and I have to say the fake outs in this movie, like especially this one right here, they really work because when you watch it like pacing wise and everything, it feels like it is like the conclusion of where the movie should be ending. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is this is pretty funny. I have to say, like I I like I mean I eventually decided against it, but like last couple of years I was thinking about if I could open a video store somewhere. I was like even looking for like cheap. Um, retail space and whatnot and i was like literally considering opening a big top video and i was curious how much i could make it look like it does in the movie here you would would you try to get that taste of golden spray standy for it i mean i don't think i could probably find it at this point in time but just in terms of like the the name and the signage and whatever because it's this is obviously a very fake video store that they built but it actually looks kind of (laughs) cool But yes, I would get the taste of the golden spray for it. I, I forgot to point it out, but er, the first time you see um, Big Top video in this movie, like the front part of the shelves where the new releases are. And there's a Godzilla 98 poster back there. Yeah, but like in the front of like the actual tapes on the top row, they have a whole uh, top row of the movie Crawl, like five or six copies spread out of the movie Crawl, which I thought was and interesting. And there, there's a bunch of trauma posters. Yeah, yeah. oddly enough. And there, there are Sony movie posters, like there's Air Force One and stuff, but there's a bunch of, you're right, especially like on the top level, it's almost all trauma posters. Well, we should also yeah, point so out... It's TriStar, also. Yeah. That's, I mean, then in terms of the trauma thing, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure Ben Ram- if it's Ben Ramsey or someone else, there's clearly a trauma love here because Mark yeah. Wahlberg's name is Melvin, which is also the name of the Toxic Avenger, so... Exactly. I the, never thought yeah, of that, the video store right. guy, he, he mentions all the late... Tra- <clears throat> late charges, but he also mentions a uh, a charge for the tape not being rewound. Yeah. I never went to a video store that did that. No, I know video stores that did yeah, that. Yeah, there were some that, like, when I, when I worked at a video store, it was very late. Like, it was already the early 2000s when I worked at a video store. So we would just check the tape, and we had rewinders. We would pop it in. But I remember, I never had to pay it, but I remember uh, sticker. Do you remember this, Trev? Stickers on the tape that said, well, some of them said be kind rewind, but some of them yeah, actually but, yeah, said yeah. twenty five cent fee if not yeah. rewound. <laughs> 
I never had the fees, but yeah, the Bikai and Rewind. Uh... Do you remember Rewinders, like when you had one in your house? Oh, yeah, I still, yeah, I still have a tape rewinder. Yeah. Although I... I don't know, I don't really know why I had one, because the VCR will rewind the tape. No, but like rewinding would would wear out the tape, uh, yeah. the the uh, spools on the VCR quicker. So, yeah. oh, was that was that the point? Yeah, yeah. like I, at our house, we always just used the VCR because we didn't like we we didn't watch that many movies on videotape, believe it or not. But um, my oh, uncle who had a huge VHS collection. He had a he had a rewinder <laughs> that like yeah. Here we here we go. It's a uh, number oh, one customer of the month. He's the number one customer of the month. He's only been jerking off for a week. Yeah, <laughs> but they, nice. yeah. rented a lot of tapes. Yeah, they put crunch on the wall like a huge poster. And I thought it's funny, like they take your picture whenever you rent a video. I'm a, I'm a supposing that big top video, but they have they have a poster there that he's the number one, you know, masturbator of the month. But my uncle actually had a, a tape rewinder that looked like a, a kind of like a Corvette. Did you guys ever see those? The ones that look like cars? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. That's an interesting idea. I wonder why anybody came up with that. Oh, I don't know. Why? Why, why were there is, beds uh, that looked like race cars back in the this day? Is, this <laughs> is one of my favorite things coming up. Trevor, oh, you know what the, I'm talking about the dolphin noises. Yeah, <laughs> he's talking about going on his boat, and there, you hear dolphin noises in the back. Yeah, it's such a great detail. Yeah, they're fighting over like a like. What would you describe this as? They're fighting on like a big like swinging thing from the ceiling, just like a big industrial grid thing. It's not really a chandelier because yeah, well, there's, there's not a, lights there's on a it, little but... like uh, there's a little thing of movie posters under it, like right. That. And Lou Diamond gives a gives a great thing where he talks about you know he just wanted to sail his boat around the world, see dolphins, maybe kill a couple, and you hear the yeah. dolphin noise <laughs> in the background. <laughs> so yeah, Tom. What was your what were your thoughts when you first saw this scene? <laughs> it's great. The dolphin. This noise. is the this is the uh, it's the video store equivalent of the uh, of the skeletons in Jurassic Park. <laughs> That's what this is. That's yeah. what they're fighting on. <laughs> yeah, it really is like that. And obviously, you know, with this dying whatever. Melvin was wearing like a big bomb. Like, the bombs are weird in this. Like this video store does. It's has huge. anyone ever been in a video store that looked anything like this? Where it's like, <laughs> well, well, this has like a second a... story, like a second floor upstairs. Like, but it doesn't look like the second floor goes anywhere. It looks like it's just no. a couple shelves and a bunch of posters. Yeah. Like, well, that's, no where, that's like where they keep the pornos. Is what you're supposed to think. Like if you if you go up the stairs and you get the pornos. But it's a huge like brick building. It's not. It's not how you would normally see a, um, a you know, a, a video rental store back then. Where usually like in strip malls and shit. Mine was in my grocery store. Yeah, like the I, one I went to. Yeah, I've yeah. There was. A, a I remember there being one in a grocery store here too. Yeah. And then obviously Avery Brooks and Nishi show up, and they see China Chow and Mark Wahlberg about to embrace, but Mark Wahlberg. He runs back into the uh, and I always like even the first time. What did you guys think the first time you saw this movie? Like I always thought it was interesting that like he ran back in. Like I never really understood why, but I thought it was a good like fake out that it seems like he died. Yeah, why does he go back? So that they'll think he's dead. Yeah. And his picture as a delinquent renter survives. Yeah, it floats down. <laughs> Like, I, I almost think this movie has, like, a touch of that type of, like, absurd humor that a movie like Heathers 
had, like, in a weird way, just all that coincidental, weird humor, like, th- things connecting that would, in real life could never possibly connect in this, and I, I kind of missed this, this type of movie existing that was, like, clearly, like, it, it's just a movie's movie, like, it's clearly <laughs> over the top. Here, okay, yeah, here's a video rental, st- we never talk about the nerd that much, the nerd, like, he's crying because <laughs> his video store is, like, like, they make it seem like he owns it or something because he's, like, the only guy that works there. He was uh, he was actually only supposed to ever appear in the end scene, but when they shot that scene, they ended up uh, liking him so much that they they put him in those couple of earlier scenes where you see him uh, giving his spiel on the phone because uh, they just liked what he did in that end scene so much. And it's funny they say uh, they're making a movie based on China Chow's kidnapping. So do you guys think that we're in the big hit universe and we're watching that movie? We could be. It's possible. Someone should they should make that movie, the movie that her dad made about her kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, that, that should be, be the next film in the series. And, oh look, <laughs> and Tony Sabato Jr. shows up. Yeah, he, he he's the limo driver now, taking her home. At first, she gets excited, thinks it might be Mark Wahlberg, but he stops the car and it turns out Mark Wahlberg was hiding in the bushes, waiting for them to pull up. Now, here you see Mark Wahlberg has, like, his shitty little, like, five-day goatee. I remember Mark Wahlberg always had that back then. Like, I guess he couldn't grow good facial hair. Do you guys remember this? He always had that shitty little fake goatee. No. And there he... He survived inside <laughs> the display the for Taste spray. the Golden Spray. Yeah. <laughs> he literally ran... Now, he had to plan that out, right? Because he had a duck underneath it. Like, when he ran back in there, he knew what he was doing, right? He would hope. Yeah, <laughs> he was just trying to kill himself, and that just worked out. Yeah, yeah, I, I miss young Mark Wahlberg. I think, you know, I mean, obviously he has done some good movies in recent years, but and, I mean, not that he could stay young forever. But I just, you know, and I'm I guess sure the Mark movie, Wahlberg misses young Mark Wahlberg too. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I miss young Trevor Snyder more than I miss young Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of in that boat. But it just, I guess, the movie industry was better back then, like in terms of uh, the type of movies could take advantage. And here we see it's them just, on, on a boat, which I guess we're supposed to assume is Cisco's bo- boat that they stole. Well, he did say, if I ever he die, said, yeah, you, can you can have, have it. it. You can have it. Yeah. He never took that back, so I mean, I guess it's all right. It is amazing to think this is 20 years old, yeah. I have to say. I, I mean, it, it's just, it goes... Morgan, Morgan Freeman, Freeman was boy in hotel, hotel lobby? lobby? Wow. What? <laughs> yeah, the little boy with the balloon. Remember that kid? They kept showing some little kid with a balloon for some reason. That was Morgan <laughs> that Freeman. Morgan Freeman? And he's a committed actor, I'll tell you that. He is. He got in the full makeup. No, I mean, I remember all this like it was yesterday. I mean, yeah, the, it's... The big hit really does feel like one of those movies that should never be more than five years old or something, yeah. you know? Like, it doesn't feel right for it to be 20 years old. I know. And and we'll remember when this came out, like, what was 20 years old when this came out? Like, Star Wars, the original. <laughs> like, think about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, 20 Isn't that years messed ago. Up? Well, I mean, even when it came out on Blu-ray, I, I think it probably came out on Blu-ray maybe like ten years after it was in theaters. I, I mean, even when I bought the Blu-ray, which is you know the last copy I bought, like I said, I bought all these different copies. But even when I bought the Blu-ray, it was ten years old. It didn't feel like an old movie. You know what I mean? It's just everything that was going on in this time period. I just remember so vividly. I mean, Scream was big. Blair yeah. Witch Project was being talked about uh there of course there's all the marketing and stuff for the 98 godzilla you know his foot is as big as the butt this bus and mm-hmm. 
it's just I remember all of that so so well. Yeah. And so for those of you out there who had your over unders on birds mentioning of Godzilla on this podcast, I think we hit four. I think a big part of why this movie, you know, like you're it doesn't seem as old as it is and stuff like that is it goes back to what Trev mentioned earlier is like this is <clears throat> it is one of the first movies to kind of have that um that very stylized, you know, kind of <clears throat> Hong Kong Asian type of action to it in an American film, but it it's it's the kind of action sequences we still see in action movies today. You know, um, this is still what what we get, and so all of that kind of stuff doesn't seem super dated. It's more the, you know, it's it's the it's the hairstyles and the and some of the humor about the suburbs and the the, the video store things like yeah, that the and the video store, store. Yeah. yeah that that have like a dated feel to them but it's you know the 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 core kind of of the movie doesn't have that dated feel to it so well i remember too that i think the cinematography dates really well and then you know doesn't date it because i remember seeing this at the time uh, you you know at the time there was like a general there's much more kind of like darker lighting in films especially in action films and whatnot you know serious films or whatnot and like this movie is very brightly lit they go out of their way like melvin's house like there's colors everywhere whether it be the cups or the cabinets or like that kind of like brightly lit cinematography and like you know even the wardrobe is very intentionally you know bright colorful stuff like I feel like that's kind of where we've gone in terms of cinema now. We've gotten to a more bright, vibrant look as opposed to like the darker, moodier look, you know. So like like visually, I think this movie holds up very well for modern audiences. The special features on this are there's two commentaries and then there are uh previews, right? Trailer. Yeah. yeah, then there's trailers for Underworld Evolution, Ultraviolet and Triple X. Yeah. It's bullshit. Well, cause... I take back what I said earlier. That the DVD doesn't have too much more, but it, it does have deleted scenes. And right, one of like... them is indeed Antonio Sabato Jr. in drag. Yeah, why? <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's whack, man. I remember they did that with Blu-ray as early on. Is They wouldn't like put on too many special features, even when the DVD had like more. I wonder why. Like, I don't know. It's bizarre. But yeah, that Maybe was... Antonio Sabato Jr. paid them to like leave. Stuff <laughs> he's, like, he's, he's like, could you leave that <laughs> off? Like, I don't want everybody to see me in drag. Yeah, Antonio went on to do a lot of DTV films. I've seen a couple of them. He's... A lot of uh, Asylum movies. He played yeah. uh, the. He was in the Asylum version of John Carter. Yeah, I was about to say, what was it called? So Princess you ever wanted, of Mars. Yeah, because Princess of Mars. And as I wrote my review, if you ever wanted to see a version where John Carter has a tramp stamp, then that's the one for you. Yeah, I, I feel like Antonio's because Antonio, if I'm not mistaken, right, he started off as a male model, if if I'm remembering mm-hmm. correctly. I mean, look at him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like, I remember he was like in Calvin Klein ads and shit. But like, I feel like his tattoos like really kind of limited him because he's a very classic, you know, Italian dark looks, whatever. I, I feel like he could have been more of a leading man or whatever. But yeah, his tattoos were, and he and he had very, uh, he had very '90s tattoos as well. I think Mark Wahlberg was smart to laser off all his '90s tattoos. But yeah, that that's it for the big hit and. Uh, Nice and short. Back when movies yeah. were only an hour and a half. Exactly. Yeah. I miss that. 
I miss it a lot too. But yeah, I mean, I I I genuinely love this movie, and it's funny that we're like, oh, this movie is twenty years old, but this is actually the newest movie we've ever covered on the movie graveyard. So, <laughs> so you know, recently we added '90s movies in the mix, but you you can't accuse us of uh, you know selling out or anything because we're still we st- we still are keeping it at least twenty years old, you know, so far. But yeah, like. We've all had different histories, and uh, I guess Jelly was the newest uh, newcomer of this film. But uh, yeah, for a movie that, like we said, is is pretty pretty forgotten or not talked about at all anymore, I was I was very happy that everybody within our little inner circle of uh, podcasting friends here. Uh, this movie opened at number one. Yeah, twenty million. Like you guys remember that when a movie would like open number one with like. 10 12 million dollars <laughs> like what like how has the movie industry changed in the last 20 years because like like i think probably the lowest opening now is probably you know 15 20 million and a lot of them like i think right now like uh we're, we're recording this on the weekend of black panther is supposed to make what like 200 million opening weekend and like mm-hmm. a fucking february opening that's insane well, I think the thing is, too, is back then, you know, like whatever the movie, there was a new movie every weekend and whatever the new movie was was probably going to be the number one movie. You right, didn't have yeah. stuff holding on forever either. Yeah. Like now, like now it seems like, I mean, obviously there's always been bomb movies or whatever, but it seems like now, like people, like they, they like as a, as a society, we grab onto one movie to kind of worship at a time. And if yeah, you like had, Jumanji was just number one for like what two months or something. Like, yeah, and they like it's still like doing pretty good at the box office, and they've already announced like the DVD or whatever for like a month from now. So like it's just it's crazy how like you know now kind of the trend is people grab onto one movie at once. They tell their friends, their friends go see it, then their friends' friends go see it. Like everybody like focuses on one movie, and then if you if you happen to like be a movie that came out the next week or two weeks later, you're just screwed now. <laughs> Whereas, like you said, back then, people were paying attention to usually what, you know, what was new that came out or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, any any final notes? The only final note I really have on this movie is I'm kind of, and believe me, I'm glad because I love this movie, but I'm kind of shocked this wasn't one of those movies that they made like a shitty direct-to-video sequel for in the early 2000s, you know? Because it seemed like it would have been really easy to do that with. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh... That. Just to kind of go back to me discovering this movie as my final thought, it was uh, a movie that, um, you know, like I said, my wife picked it out and I thought it was going to be like a a cheap Guy Ritchie knockoff. And I, I wasn't super excited, honestly, about about watching it. And then it got over and and uh, it fully converted me. And uh, I love this movie. And I'm glad that. You know, I'm glad I found it. Glad or glad my wife found it. So, uh, yeah, the big hit. It's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I really like it, and uh, I've only seen it a couple times in the last, probably since the early 2000s or whatever. But uh, um, I, it's it's one that I watched a lot on VHS. So, I mean, even though I haven't really seen it in a long time, it's one where like I still, you know, so much of it. I remember so vividly, you know, dialogue or certain scenes and it was fun doing this. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a brilliant movie or the best 
thing ever. Like <laughs> goat seems to. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. It's better than Star Wars. Saying I think things like I think this is one of the best, some of the best screenwriting I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not gonna go that far. Okay, come on. But it now. is a really, it is a really fun movie, and I think it's, uh, it's ripe for rediscovery. I, I think it at the time and maybe still is by people that remember it kind of was dismissed. Uh, it, but I, I think it's a funnier movie than than people give it credit for, and it's just it's very entertaining, and it 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 moves by at a quick pace, and it's like the perfect length. And um, yeah, I would recommend it to anyone that likes uh, kind of you know sillier, you know, uh, more like action comedy type movies. Yeah, I say let's let's let this podcast be the beginning of a resurgence because let's face it, when this movie ends. Mark Wahlberg, Bokeem Woodbine, and Antonio Savato Jr. are all still alive, which means we could get like a, a sequel now. You know, if they're trotting out all these other old franchises and bringing them back. Well, now the, the now the thing is they do a uh, a TV series reboot, so yeah, oh, maybe get a, a hot young cast for uh, you know C- CBS's big hit series or something. Trev, you meant their characters are still alive because I was like, "What? Well, Lou Diamond Phillips is still alive." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what, what do you? If you guys got a sequel, what do you think the sequel title would be? I'm going to go with the bigger hit. Yeah, the bigger hit's the obvious one. <laughs> yeah. And I hate I hate to go down this this dark path, but uh, say this had to be remade for current audiences. Who who do you see as being the cast of guys? Channing Tatum. Wow. Channing Tatum would that. be the new Melvin, I think. If this movie was made today and they were looking for the same vibe, I think it's just because it's like that's made for him. I think for sure Samuel L. Jackson would be playing the Avery Brooks role, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was actually seeing it. I could see uh, Vince McMahon remaking it with uh, Finn Balor as Melvin, The Miz as uh, Cisco. Uh, probably, I, th- I think probably for like the little tiny uh, Antonio Sampato Jr., I think we'd probably get uh, Bo Dallas. And uh, I can't figure out, who do you think? You think you think they would give uh, the Bokeem Woodbine part to... Um, Big E. Big E. Yeah, I could, you know what? That's perfect. I, w- I was thinking, what's his name? Uh, the Gator guy for a second, but I think you're right. I think oh, Big E would get Titus it. O'Neil. Yeah, Titus O'Neil, yeah. Bird didn't understand anything you just said. No, he didn't. <laughs> Bird's like, I think if they remade it as a kaiju movie, I think Godzilla would play the Mark Wahlberg part. I think Rodan would be Cisco. <laughs> so yeah, so that's it for the big hit. Let the let this podcast be the moment where we draw the line in the sand and we start the revolution. If you've seen this movie and you love it. Please give it one more watch. If you've heard this podcast but you've never seen the movie, go rent it. I'm sure it's one of those movies you can rent on Amazon or whatever for like three. Let's just bucks. do like tell you like if let now you have a job, everyone. You introduce the big hit to two people and make each of them agree to show it to two people, yeah. and then we can get this going. You know, we'll get it going, uh, and within a year we'll, we'll start the uh, the 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 <laughs> what is it change.org petition to get Mark <laughs> Wahlberg to sign on to the big hit too. Uh, the Blu-ray is eleven fifty right now on Amazon. So yeah, 
And I'm sure you can I, rent I, it for even cheaper. Now I'm looking at this DVD cover, and uh, this isn't a good cover either. <laughs> you oh, have that weird, a, like, photoshopped hand. It's <laughs> it better than what you guys got. It's all yeah, right. it's, it is. I'll go with Trev. But I well, got, yeah, everyone, that doesn't even look like Mark Wahlberg on the Blu-ray cover. Well, it doesn't I mean, even look I, like I Mark Wahlberg him. in the movie, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So everybody, thank you for joining us. I want to say thank you one last time to all my podcasting friends. Thank you, Trevor, uh, as always, always hanging out at the graveyard. Thank you, Bird, for making a uh, return trip. Jelly, I want to say thank you again for coming back. But in a way, this is your first official time on the graveyard, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because you were on the the movie, the 1990s movie Megaplex. which Yeah, my job title changed this time yeah. from ticket taker to grave digger. Exactly. <laughs> so, thank from you guys so much. ticket taker to grave digger sounds like an unreleased Bob Dylan song or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from ticket taker to grave digger. <laughs> but yeah thank you everybody so much thank you everybody i know we've got a lot of new listeners in the last couple of weeks things is some online promotion and whatnot so i want to say thank you if you're one of the new people who uh you know jumped on board lately thank you and if you're an old-time listener thank you for sticking around uh keep watching them uh 80s 90s flicks keep uh you know help us keep these movies alive thank you everybody and we'll catch you next time here on the movie graveyard <laughs>